All right. That was a powerful worship time. Just so thankful for that. Thank you, guys. And Father, uh, we just pray that this would be an extraordinary service. would not just go through the motions. Just need to pray that again, that we would not go through the motions. We'd not just get so routine that we would miss Christ and his word and his people to pray for each other. What a wonderful thing. An incredible weekend together with 30 students, ADS. Uh, many tears around the room, just uh, hearing each other's testimony, like Eric said. I mean, just people are being transformed in this church. And I just wish you could have had a video camera on that. Testimony time of 30 students walk, uh, just all they had is three minutes. And I, I mean, there's so many, I was like, can you just give me more? Give me more. I mean, it would have been all there, all there, all night in that hotel room. And just so thankful for what God is doing, just hearing testimonies throughout this week of just hearing again the uh, people saying how transformed they are by the gospel, just hearing the gospel message again last week, the rich young ruler. That was incredible uh, and even touching again for me to walk through that passage even midweek and say again, Lord, uh, am I holding on to anything that is keeping me from you? And I hope that you uh, allowed the Lord to speak last weekend and all throughout the week in your life groups uh, and that we want to be a people in our life groups that live this out, live it out in our discipleship time, that we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word and that God would bring total transformation, lasting transformation in our lives. So why don't we go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. This will be the end of chapter 10, or at least, well, no, it will be one more. Um, <laughs> blind Barmaeus. It's, uh, we're, we are walking slowly through the gospel of Mark, and we, we do have one more after this in, the, in this chapter. But we're going to be going, it's a little longer this morning again, uh, verse 32 to 45. Uh, we're going to go ahead and read about Jesus' sufferings foretold, and then also the difference between worldly and godly leadership characteristics. And so uh, hopefully this will be very practical for you this morning uh, and that we get down to what Jesus has, has called us to be as leaders, as disciples. Uh, and so why don't we go ahead and read that. And starting in verse 32, it says this, that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who were following, followed were fearful and again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And then he did this three different times in 831 and 931. And now he does this in chapter 10. So he's, he does this often with his disciples. And he says this, Behold, we are going to Jeru up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, scourge him, kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Verse 35 here, James and John, the two, disciples, or two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the, the cup that I drink you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. 
But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it's for those whom it has been prepared. And in verse 31, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so I have three simple characteristics, three points in worldly characteristics of leadership. And one I want to land on with godly characteristic of leadership. And I think that it is important, as, especially as new people come in to the church, wondering what kind of leaders do we have? What kind of people serve this church? And Jesus was, again, just to give you context, as he's beginning to move towards Jerusalem, as he's beginning to set his face like flint, he's, he is determined to go to the cross to save you and I. To go to the cross to, to bring forgiveness for all those who had put their trust in him. That was his objective. That was his goal. That is why he came. That is why he became incarnate, meaning he was God in heaven. He always is God. He always will be God, but he put on flesh to come to walk the streets of Jerusalem and Judea, doing miracles, signs, and wonders, healing the sick, casting out demons, doing good. The religious leaders did not like that. They thought he was, they were, he was a threat to their religion. But Jesus, again, he came not to fight politics, not to, to try to uh, bring a utopia to the earth, but to save sinners like you and me. To bring salvation, sanctification, to make us more like him in that process. And eventually make us completely like him in heaven, which is called glorification. And Jesus knew exactly why he came. In fact, we see this even 700 years before his birth in Isaiah 53, prophesied that he would become the, the sacrifice for sin. Just think about that for a second. The next time you read Isaiah, this is a prophecy that, that said that this man would come to die as a substitute for sinners like you and me. 700 years prior. This is in the books. This is, this is ready to happen. Matthew 1.21, even before his birth, an angel came. He says, you shall call, he's talking to his parents, you shall call him Jesus. He, and he will save people from their sin. And they held this in their heart. But as Jesus got older, he lived a normal life, a normal boyhood. He was a normal toddler. He's perfect. He's the only mom on earth that could actually say, without a doubt, my kid is perfect, not yours. John 12, 27 says, for this purpose, I came for this hour. Mark 2.19, he knew that he was a, the bridegroom that it would eventually leave and be taken away. He knew this. This is why he was confident in going to Jerusalem. But his, watch this, that in verse 32 to 33, his disciples were fearful. They were amazed. The, the, the key word here, this is why every detail, every word counts in the Bible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It matters. It's there for a reason. No word is wasted in the Bible. 
And as you read this, you're looking at this saying, well, why were they so amazed? Why were they so fearful? Well, when your friend, your leader is saying they're going, he's going to Jerusalem and saying what is going to happen to him, you would be too. Would say, what in, if you know this is going to happen, why in your right mind would you actually go to the very place where they're going to kill you? Usually, this, if this is some sort of prophecy, you'd probably say, thank you, Lord, for that, and you'd move another direction. Right? His disciples should have known this. And so Jesus, being the compassionate shepherd he is, as he, he had, they said that in verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. That probably sounded an alarm off in the disciples' mind, and Jesus knew that. So he... In verse 33 to 34, he said, this is what's going to happen to me. I want to tell you again now for a third time what is going to happen to me. I'm not going to set up some political party to take down Rome. I don't want to be a disappointment to you. But that's not why I came. I did not come just to... To, to have healing crusades to heal people temporarily, only for them to get sick again and die. But I, I came for something much greater than that, to set up a kingdom that's here on earth that my people can be a part of now. They can be saved now. They can know me now. They can have a relationship with me now. They can have a relationship with their father who created them. And, and it even gets better than that as I would imagine he begins to unfold things because even we find out in John chapter 14, he says, I, I am preparing a place for you. That even if the worst thing happens, a tragedy happens among your family if somebody dies. We've had so many deaths even in the last few weeks. Of siblings dying in our church that we know about. Young people. Tragically. Even if that happens... I prepared a place for you called heaven. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more depression, no more strife. It's going to be a perfect place. Pure bliss, pure joy for all of eternity. This is why he came. He, he told his disciples over and over and over again. This wasn't a surprise. It wasn't as if he died on the cross and then somehow a plan changed and things got, you know, he, he started changing the plans on them. No, he, this, was from, this was in the book's, from day one. In fact, we could go all the way back in your Bibles to Genesis 3, verse 15. The promise of him coming to defeat the enemy, Satan, and to save his people happened right there in the first book of the Bible. Nothing is outside of, is a surprise to God's plan, but the disciples should have known that. I'm going to rattle off a few verses here. I'm going to go rapid speed I'm not going to, this is not the point of the message, but I want you to even, it says that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God in Romans 10. And the disciples should have known because they were students of the word of God. And how often we forget what the word says. But it says in first, it says in second Corinthians one, right? That the promises of God are yes and amen. They're for you and I. Second Peter 1, he says that, that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have all the promises that we need, and, and they're meant for you. And maybe you've heard them over and over, but you need to hear it again. That's why we come to church. We hear the word of God being preached. It says in Zechariah 9 
And then it was fulfilled in Matthew 21, 4 and 5, his triumphal entry. It's as if God's saying, look, if you open up the scriptures, you're never going to be confused. My word will guide you. It's a lamp in the darkness for you. You will never be in the dark as my people if you read the word of God. You will be with vision, not without vision. Psalm 2 says that his enemies will rage against him. As the disciples should have seen as Jesus is being attacked all the time. His enemies are raging against him. And then ultimately on the cross, the mocking, the scourging, the, the beating, the crown of thorns, the whole thing. The nails in the, in, through his wrists, his feet. They should have just sounded off an alarm. They should have known this was coming in Psalm 2. Zechariah 13 is desertion from his friends. Who is there at the cross at the end? John. His women followers. His mother. Where's everybody else? This was said even in Zechariah years, decades, centuries before Jesus even came. Said that there was a prophecy that this man, his friends would reject him and leave him. Zechariah 11, betrayal from th- by 30 pieces of silver by Judas. That's amazing. Your Bible is incredible. You just need to crack it open every once in a while. You need to read it in light of what has happened, in light of what will happen. We never even have to be confused about the future. The past is very clear. The present is clear. The future is clear. You may not like it, but it's true. And the truth sets us free. Numbers 21, his body being lifted up as a reference to his death and resurrection. This is back in the, in, in the first five books of the Bible. And it, it is fulfilled in John 3.14. Jesus says, yes, my body will be lifted up as Moses said it would be. Exodus 12.46, Psalm 34 And then fulfilled in John 19, that none of his bones would be broken. It's incredible. Psalm 69, 21, Matthew 27, 34, fulfilled that he was given vinegar to drink. Zechariah 12, that his side would be pierced. They would pierce him and look on him. And then one day, as the that God has a plan for the salvation of the Jews, they would, they would look at that prophecy and they would look back at, at, what, uh, at, the, at the rejection, at the fact that they rejected Christ all these years. For hundreds of years, they would look back and say, oh, we pierced him. We pierced him. We killed him. And isn't he merciful to save us now? Isaiah 53, the famous passage, right? His grave would be a sign with wicked men, but then all of a sudden something would happen in Psalm 27. He would actually be in a rich man's tomb. Rich man's tomb. You cannot deny that this is the word of God. It is true. That's not enough. Psalm 16, 10, that he would rise victorious over death. He would not stay in the grave. Fulfilled in Acts 2, 25. Peter gave that sermon. Pentecost Sunday. Psalm 110, 1, that he would ascend to the place of honor at the Father's right hand. Again, Acts 2, that was Peter's sermon. The disciples knew that they were headed to Jerusalem for Passover, but little did they know 
that they were walking with the lamb. The actual Passover lamb. And if you find yourself at times confused because you don't know which way is up, you could take great comfort in the disciples in this passage and knowing that they too sometimes were in the dark. We can be in the dark because maybe we neglect the scriptures. We forget what God has said so clearly. And it is good to go back and repent and say, God, again, open my eyes. Illuminate my eyes so that I might see the scripture the way you written it, wrote it for us, for our sanctification for our salvation, for our comfort. Amen? So good. We can just keep going in this topic alone. But against this backdrop of his suffering, his, the disloyalty, the betrayal, the rejection of his friends, against this backdrop of such humility displayed, saying, I know what my father has called me to do and I'm going to walk to Jerusalem. And people try, will try to stop me, but I'm going to go. It's just like when they try to stop Paul Right, they tried to stop him. They said, look, you know what's going to happen. You're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to get arrested. And you're going to be killed at one point. And he said, I know exactly because Jesus told me this when he saved me in Acts 9. That that man will suffer for my cause. The word of God is meant for our comfort and encouragement. And Jesus knew what the word said in the Old Testament. He knew what the father said to him. He knew the objective. He knew the goal. He knew the vision. And he was going to Jerusalem. And his disciples simply needed to know that, needed to be reminded of that. And it is against this backdrop, you see, that we find three negative characteristics of a leader. It's just, it was almost like absurd. After this, this beautiful backdrop of, of, of Jesus suffering, of going to the cross for them, for these people who will now react in pride to his humility. He will go to the cross for them. So James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And I, I think this is funny because, first of all, this is pause, point number one, negative characteristic, a worldly characteristic is self-promotion. Self-promotion. And that comes from selfish ambition. You know the sons of thunder, right? Sons of Zebedee, but it's really the sons of thunder. Why did he call them, why did Jesus nickname them the sons of thunder? Because they were passionate, fiery, arrogant men, James and John, right? As a lot of leaders can be, right? When they first are appointed to leadership, groomed to be leadership, they had bold personalities. You remember in Luke 9, 51 to 56, when people simply didn't receive Jesus, these knuckleheads had a great idea. I, I know what we shall do to people who reject our cause, Jesus. We shall call fire down on them. <laughs> it's just another form of control, right? But that's exactly what they suggested to command fire. We know the plan. And Jesus said, do you understand that I came to save people? Not just call fire down on them. <laughs> and they just didn't understand that. They got to be a part of Jesus' key events, transfiguration. That's a big deal. As we talked about that several months ago. Raising Jairus' daughter. That was probably a year ago, I think, we talked about that. And then in several months from now, they get to be a part of the garden experience. I mean, at this point, they just feel like, hey, man, we're the sons of thunder. We, we get to be a, a part of this amazing uh, 
posse of Jesus, this group of Jesus that's going to change the world. And we seem to, we, we have elite status. We get to be a part of these intimate gatherings of Jesus, these intimate talks. And Jesus had a plan for that, right? Because they would be the leaders of the church. But they thought they were better than everybody else. They thought they were bad. They thought that the 10 were beneath them. They thought they had a personal advantage over the rest of the disciples. They had what some people call entitlement. They thought that nobody else mattered. They mattered. I mean, Jesus invited us into this small little closed group, you know, here. And, and everybody else, well, they simply are not as good as us. They believed this lie. That it was, they, they, they forgot the grace of God. They forgot that they were even picked by the Father himself to be a part of this, if you remember. That they got to be picked. They, the Father, Jesus prayed. Remember Mark 135, he, he spent time with, with God saying, who shall be my disciples? And the Father picked them. Who were they to say that they were better than anybody else? They were promoting themselves to, to higher status. And I love this little point here. They just said, teacher, will you do for us whatever we ask of you? It's almost as like, like you know, if they, he, he uh, it, it was like a little kid that just asked, mom, could you do this one thing? Just, just, and then, and, and if, you know, manipulating the mom to say, yes, I'll do this one thing. Of course I'll do this. But being a wise parent as Jesus is, a wise leader, what would, before I say yes, could you just let, like, let me know what, what that's going to be? Before I just blindly say yes to your request? Because Jesus does say, ask whatever it is, right? But what? According to what? His will, and it will be done. I mean, James even says you don't have because you don't ask. But when you do ask, you ask with what? Selfish motives. It's not a good thing. We are called to be bold with God and ask. And pray. It says, ask and you shall receive, right? Matthew 7. Knock and the door will be open to you. But I will not answer your selfish prayers. I will not answer when you have pride underneath that undergird your prayers. Self-promotion. They're climbing over each other. And not only that, but they pulled the family card. If you remember back in Matthew 20, verse 21, who did they, who did they get to be a part of this little, little deal, this little request? Jesus' aunt, their mother, James and John's mother. Hey, mom, like, could you help out? I mean, they were just little sneaky little guys. I mean, just maybe, you know, maybe Jesus's aunt could pull some strings, you know, on his heartstrings, just like, hey, if you just get in there. I would imagine both happened in that sense. They, I'm sure they asked and she asked. I mean, the, the gospels give different angles, different camera angles to the conversations. They just wanted the place of honor. They simply, have, they, they simply uh, cared less about seeing Jesus model true leadership, which was humble leadership, servant leadership. And they dishonored the disciples. They completely disregarded them. So why did they, why did they think they could lead? I mean, they said, they said here that we would love to be at your left and your right. And that just meant a place of honor, a place of leadership, a place of ruling. In verse 37, 
Grant that we may sit there. So what were they thinking? What was going on in the minds of the disciples? Well, they thought, okay, well, Jesus just talked about dying. And it's a good thing he talked about at the very end. We all caught that, that he would rise again. So if that's the case, then maybe we could be a part of the millennial kingdom. Maybe we can rule and reign with the Messiah. And we get the privileged leadership positions. This would be glorious to finally lead and, and rule over Rome. Again, they, just had, they, they were just skewed in their thinking. They were just thinking about their tales. Isn't that often the case in worldly leadership? Isn't that often the case in, when you think of leadership? It just want to rule. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And that's exactly what I want. And they wanted to rule with Jesus. Again, they wanted the crown before the cross. They wanted the glory without the suffering. They wanted the honor without humility. And that is worldly leadership's finest, isn't it? Number two is that the worldly leadership is, is overconfidence. It's self-reliance. It's, proud. It's, it's being proud. Verse 38 says this, that, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with I am baptized? And what is he saying? They understood that this cup always meant the wrath of God. Psalm eleven six, Psalm 75, Psalm, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. Our scriptures talk about this cup. The wrath of God would be poured out. Are you able to do that? Are you able to take that? The full fury, the suffering? Yes, we are able. Oh, they wanted that position so bad. They were just not even thinking straight. And Jesus said to them, oh, you will. You will actually. I can't promise the right or the left. I can't promise what, what's going to happen in the end. If you're going to have these leadership positions that you're lusting after. But one thing I can promise is if you're going to be my disciple, you will suffer. I, I can guarantee that. It says in John 15 that what? If we abide with him, we'll bear much fruit. But then later on, what does he say? If they hated me, they'll hate you. It's part of the program here. It's part of the leadership. It's part of being a disciple. And James would be the first martyr executed in Acts chapter 12. He was part of that question. He was the first one murdered. John... He had to wait. He died later. He died in 100 AD. History says that they tried burning him. They couldn't do it. They tried putting him in a boiling pot of oil twice. So they said, look, we can't kill this guy, so we're just going to put him on an island by himself. So he spent the rest of his days writing the book of Revelation. It's pretty, it's quite a privilege, isn't it? But he suffered greatly. And he died by himself on an island. And he says this, right? Verse 40. But to sit on my right or my left, I don't know. It's not mine to give. But it is for those who it has been prepared. The Father knows. The Father will know. The Father dictates. He will sovereignly decide every person in this room's end. You do not know how it's going to end for you. You know how it's going to end 
And in the end, that when you stand before Christ, I hope you hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know how it ends because you, you could believe the gospel and trust that he will glorify you on the last day. But you don't know when your last day will be. I remember when John MacArthur says this, he says, look, I'm not afraid to die. I'm just afraid of how I'm going to die. And I agree. As believers, we're not to be afraid of our death. I mean, it's normal to, I don't know how I'm going to die. It's going to be painful. It's going to be long. So did he give it an end in martyrdom? Of course, there's normal fears. But the Father is sovereign over it all. The third one in Mark 10, 41 to 42, it's competitiveness. It is a worldly trait of every world leader that you know. It's comparison. It's competitiveness. And I, I, verse 41 says this, the hearing this, the 10 became indignant. Why were they indignant? Were they indignant for the right reasons? Like, man, I can't believe these knuckleheads are always, they're always prideful, aren't they? And I just, I don't like how they've offended Jesus like that and how they, how they manipulated the aunt and my mom and, and, and John, James' mom. I, I just, I feel so hurt by that. No, their pride was pricked. They wanted to ask first. Why didn't we ask first? They're always faster than we are. They're always quicker. They always have more privilege. People always recognize them more. That's why they have the leadership position. It's comparison. It's competitiveness. And this thing would last all the way to the death of Christ, right? In Luke 22, 24, a dispute rose among them as to which one is the greatest. They would never stop. It would keep going. And this is of our world today. Watch how the world leaders, even in our own country, watch how they act. Once they get in, well, they manipulate, manipulate everybody to get in power. Once they're in power, they manipulate to stay there. People love power. And Jesus is saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the pagans. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, just Lord, they just, they're just controlling. They just want to control people. They manipulate to get there and they manipulate to stay there. Many of them self-appointed. And their great men exercise authority over them. But he says this, and this is the quality that Jesus wants in all of us. He says, but it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is who Christ is. This is exactly what he wanted his disciples to know because they would be world changers. And they did change after the cross. And the Holy Spirit came and rocked their worlds. But the positive characteristic of a leader is simply humility, self-denial. There's a paradox, right? The path to greatness in the kingdom lies in the humble self-denial. That just doesn't make sense. That's just not even close to the world's way of, of coming into leadership but being a servant to all. And you might ask, well, is ambition bad? Is it bad to have ambition? I mean, look at the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We, it is, it is, he actually says, it is our ambition, whether home or, or absent, to be pleasing to him. You should be ambitious, but ambitious with what? Not your position, but ambitious to please God. 
to serve him, to make him great. First Corinthians 9, 20, he says, I've disciplined my body and make it my slave so that what? I don't become disqualified. Have you ever thought about this as a leader, if you're a leader even now? The people that have invested in you? You know, one of the worst thoughts that I have is failing and then having to go to the people that invested in me for the last 20 years and saying, I'm done. To be a disappointment for the people that have invested in you. Paul's saying, look, I don't want to be disqualified. So I'm going to be disciplined. Disciplined more than anybody else. So that he, he, and he certainly was ambition, ambitious. He certainly was a hard worker. And there was nothing wrong with that, but he did it again for the glory of God. He, he denied himself of the worldly privileges so that he would serve people. Serve people. 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the fight, faith. 2 John 8, watch that you do not lose what we have accomplished, that you may receive a full reward. In fact, in Revelation, John wrote this too as well. Revelation twenty two twelve, he wrote this of Jesus. My reward is with me. He's carrying a reward for his believer, for the believers, for his sons and daughters, rendering to each man according to what he has done. We can be ambitious. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not lackadaisical. It's not coming into leadership and saying, hey, whatever, anything goes, it's fine. You know, I just want to be humble, self-denial. No, it is disciplining yourself in such a way that you would become great so that you can serve people. And we're going to get really practical with three things that I want you guys to take home with you this morning. But I want to read to you one of the best passages on leadership out there. And this is of Jesus in Philippians 2. Verses 3 through 11. Why don't you go ahead and go there. He says this. If you want to become a leader, this should be your verse. This should be your passage. You shouldn't even think about leadership unless you've read this over and over and over, unless you prayed the prayer and said, God, make me into this kind of person. He says this in verse three, do nothing from selfish, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look at then to yourselves or out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He denied himself of the full privileges of being God. He never relinquished being God. He never threw off God. But for the sake of dying a humble death for you and I, he laid it aside. And simply he didn't, he, he didn't use his powers, so to speak, to get himself out of tricky situations, to get himself out of suffering, to get himself out of death, but rather humbled himself under the Father to complete his will to die, as we just talked about in Mark 10. 
But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being the likeness of men, being found in an appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him. There is exaltation after humiliation. But it's in God's timing, which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And those who are in heaven and on earth, under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful passage on leadership. You shouldn't even think about leadership until you've owned that passage. Until you've owned it. So I want to give you three simple, I guess, takeaways, take-home practicals for you guys. And three things, I want to give you three characteristics of godly leaders as you can take this home. Godly leaders are divinely appointed, not self-appointed. I can't tell you how many times someone comes up to me and says, I, I think I want to be a leader. Really? Interesting. Did you appoint yourself? Or did God appoint you? Do others agree with that? You got to have the internal call of leadership. You got to also have the external call. The internal call comes from God. I, I do believe God does call. He stirs people's hearts. Keep it to yourself. Maybe talk to one other person and say, I don't know. It's just, it's there. It's stirring. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. We want to raise up godly leaders in this church. We want to send them out and plant new churches in the nations, in our nation. But they are divinely appointed, not self-appointed. Christian leaders are Christ-made, not self-made. They are Christ-made, not self-made. They, they, they are made for the task. Look at Moses. Moses, you know, a, a, good, a good dose of self-apprehension should be good for us. I, I, you know, I don't know. You know, Moses is like, I, I just not sure if I could go before Pharaoh and do what you're asking me to do. It's amazing the arrogance and the pride in today's leadership. I can do it. We are able. We are able. I want to sit at your right and left. I want to rule and reign with you. I, I, I. Godly leaders are Christ made. A healthy dose of self-apprehension is good for us. Someone without, I love looking for people without this lust and this, this desire to, to lead, to be in the center of attention. Anytime something like that happens, it's like I, I'm like ignoring that person. I just completely ignore them until God humbles them. Because this isn't a game. Because if you notice that Moses and Paul, Paul also had self-apprehension. Gideon also had self-apprehension. Most of the godly leaders that you read in the Old Testament, it's like, no, are you kidding me? You pick me? What in the world? Why would you do that? I'm like the least, of, I mean, I'm the worst guy here. I'm the chief of sinners. You apparently got it wrong, God. Instead of saying, no, you got it right by picking me. I mean, thank God you didn't pick that guy to plant the church. He would have made a disaster. But that's what you see in worldly leadership. You see that in the church. Just sheer arrogance, not self-apprehension. Because, you know, and I believe the reason why God picks people like that, because he has got to see them as he wants them to be, because they're made for the task as they lean on God, as they lean on Christ, as they lean on the Holy Spirit. 
someone who's self-appointed, are not made for the task. And Moses had a, a, a tall order to go in front of Pharaoh, leading millions across the desert to the promised land. And his arrogance, he started off humble, but his arrogance cost him the entrance to the promised land. You could have a great start and a very bad end. Something practical you guys can do in addition to being convinced of your unimportance, like Paul considered himself a nobody, something practical you can do is just be patient with the process. You might have a stirring in your heart. You might, I don't doubt that God has, I, I mean, I believe that God has called more men and women to rise up here, calling more men to be elders, more women to serve the church in different capacities. Absolutely. And I know that the feeling of feeling like, man, I'm overlooked. Feeling like the 10. And I feel like the time, I feel like, man, someone's always beat me to it. But there's still pride there, isn't it? To say, oh, I'm overlooked. To kind of wallow in your self-pity. Oh, man. Don't you think God's big enough to be like, not overlook somebody? I mean, he created you. Put eyeballs in your head. He gave you a mouth to speak. He gave you legs to walk. I'm convinced that he could see you, even though you might not think that he sees you or others see you. He has a timing. It's perfect timing. Perfect timing. So in the the meantime, what do you do? Serve people. If you want to be great, serve. Serve. Quietly, humbly, joyfully. Not looking like, man, I'm just, you know, life group leader. Life group leader? Never encourages me. It's amazing. They little do the little, you know, in life groups, like, oh, again, again. You scream in your head. Instead of being excited for whoever got picked. It's great. It's awesome. What I do know is that God always has, he is always faithful to encourage you. He's also faithful for the, to, to put you in the training that he needs to put you in. In fact, maybe the reason why you feel overlooked is because God is humbling you and he's doing something deep in you. He's preparing you for the task. Because leadership is not easy. And he was preparing the disciples. He was preparing Peter. I mean, for this, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but for the first time, it wasn't like Peter that was putting his foot in his mouth at that point. However, I do believe that he probably was part of the 10 and speaker for the 10. He's like, look, man, I got to be a part of this group, the transfiguration. What do you, what do you jokers do? You, can, you guys do nothing, you know. But I, we don't have proof of that, so we don't actually really don't know. <laughs> but we can only imagine, right? Number two is that godly leaders put others above themselves, not themselves above others. They absolutely delight in serving others. They want people to thrive. Their joy is that people thrive above themselves. It's a Philippians 2 mindset, right? They love the idea of not pyramid, but a tree. Pyramids are like the guys on top and everybody else is down below serving them. But rather the opposite, inverted, inverted pyramid, it more looks like a tree. The person's on the bottom serving everyone so everybody else could be great. Make people great. Give your life to making people great. 
That's what Peter did eventually. I mean, he got rocked by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. He's like, all that stuff's behind me. My future's ahead of me. He's appointed me. He, he called me a rock anyways, right? I don't feel like it. Maybe for the first time, I really don't believe it. But he called me this. And I must preach the gospel until my death. They don't feel irritated or annoyed by when others are honored more than themselves or when they're overlooked. They're more like John the Baptist. I've, I must decrease so that he might increase. And even using that by a way of metaphor, just to say that I would rather decrease and get out and fade in the background. It's a wonderful feeling. And let others gain the spotlight. I'm telling you, one of my greatest joys here is raising up an elder team that are rocking it. I love seeing people sharpen, get to, I mean, in so many others, not just even, I'm looking at faces, not just even the elders, but the future leaders of this church even. Maybe even ones that we'll send out. Such a delight. Such an honor. Something practical you could be doing in, in, this, in this section here is, is that maybe just pause. You know, I've, I've shared this before, but a lot of times I'm on a flight um, and they have like the free texting now on United and they have that on Southwest. And the, I'll, I'll just pick out my phone and, and go through it. If you have an iPhone, it's usually free. You could just text through the internet and uh, more reason to probably get an iPhone. And, and, just, uh, and so you, just, you, have, you have this wonderful device here that is an encouragement device. It's amazing. And just taking about 10 to 15 minutes and just going through the list in your, in your call log and, and just saying, who can I, I just got to wait on the Lord and just encourage people. It's nothing much. It's maybe like three or four lines. And just wait on the Lord. Give them a scripture. Put above, others above yourself. And a lot of times those come, I'm not kidding, but a lot of the times those come when you're kind of having a crummy day and the Lord just speaks to you and says, hey, you need to encourage people. And it's amazing, a thankful heart, thinking about others, all of a sudden I'm, there's some joy that rises in my heart. That's who we are as a people. That's our culture. Instead of just grumbling and complaining the rest of the way, just the rest of the flight or whatever, and just get up in the morning after a quiet time, just say, God, I just want to encourage one person a day. I just, my goal for the next... Several months, I just want to encourage one person. Just check it off. Be systematic about it. I promise you'll, you'll like grumble and complain less. You won't think of yourself so much. Something practical. And last but not least here, godly leaders are humble, dependent on God, not self-reliant. Nothing we accomplish makes us significant. Do you know everything we have is from God? Paul said that. But I mean, everything I, haven't you, everything you've given, haven't you received that yourself? I mean, if you give grace away and, and you've preached the gospel, hasn't God given you that ability? Don't be so impressed with yourself. Wow, where did that come from? Yeah, where did that come from? It came from God. Don't be so impressed with yourself. Remember, we plant, guys. We water. But it is God who saves. It is God who sanctifies. And it is God who glorifies. We have a small part to play, and it's very significant. Who could be saved without someone sharing the gospel? Romans 10, right? I mean, yeah, he needs a human being to share the gospel. Nobody gets saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. And that includes a human being, right? And that might include you in San Francisco, on campus, in your neighborhood, in Italy. But don't be so impressed because we know that we plant, we water, but God grows us. 
Another thing is to have perspective in this and that we don't deserve to even be a leader. In fact, we deserve to be in hell. The next time you're like, man, I, I, this, isn't, this life is not going the way I want it to go. Well, God might be saying it could go worse. It could be much worse. And to have that perspective of, man, I'm going to heaven. So what if I'm getting ignored here? So what if I don't have the position that I thought I would? I get heaven. And that's enough. In fact, that's way more than enough. And don't underestimate, over, I should say, overestimate your ability to stay the course. We think we can rely on ourselves and realize that, our, uh, realize that yes, indeed, our hearts do wander. They're prone to wander, as that song says. And a lot of times we're like, we are able. Even when it comes to sin issues. Like just when you think you're finally getting some breakthrough in your sin, you're like, somehow you tie it back to yourself and say, it's probably because I did this, this, and this, isn't it? And you realize, no, <laughs> it is the grace of God that you're standing, that you have not fallen. And he even says that, be reminded of this, lest you fall, that God will provide a way out for you, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We assume what we, that we can handle what we cannot handle, and that he's even overcoming sin, let alone the leadership roles that God may call us to. We assume we're okay. Listen to this quote by a pastor. He says this, perhaps you don't drift the way that I do, but I constantly forget the deep hole of depravity from which the Lord's mighty love rescued me. Drifting does not take any effort at all, does it? Just stop cultivating the knowledge of Christ and the evil current of secularism does the rest. You could easily get swept. It's easy for people to get swept. It's very difficult for you to stand. As we stand in Christ, as we stand with his power, all passion for the law, for the law seems to increasingly, increasing fading memory. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Paul willing to be cursed for the sake of his countrymen. We forget these things. And those things become very remote to the point of being unreal. We drift so easily. In other words, we had a heart for the lost. Even I was talking to some of the elders even now, like that now that we're in fall launch, we're kind of going back like, wow, it's nice to just go back to summer. It was kind of easy then. It's like, what? This is like what we were made for. We're made for now. We're made for this moment. It's easy for us to drift. Easy for us to be overcome, as it says, by this pastor, the current evil secularism. It does the rest. It sweeps us away if we're not careful. We think we're able. We think we're, we, can, we can fight against the tide of sin, against the culture war. Hey, we got it. Talked to somebody the other day. You know, I, I, I constantly give people recommendations for books or recommendations for different things. And, 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 and it says, you know, many, many times like, oh, well, I've, I've, I've heard that already. I've heard that already. I've heard that already. I've heard that already. What's something new? You don't need something new. You need to be reminded of the truth that sets you free. And you stand on that truth. People are always looking for something new. It's the old. Stand at the crossroads, it says in Jeremiah 16. And find the ancient path. You don't need new. You need to be reminded of the old and live out that truth. 
It says right here in 2 Peter, it's so, so well said, right? And therefore I shall, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by the way of reminder. And if you're wondering what he's reminding them of for homework tonight, just read the, the verses above because all those promises are for you too. We need to be reminded of this truth. That's why we come to church every Sunday. I need to get the preached word in me. I, of course, you already know that Jesus rose again. He died, all those, all those things. I get that. But is it touching your heart? That's the question. Is it making a difference in your life? Peter's saying, let, it, let your heart be aflamed again, on fire. Is your heart on fire for the truth of God? Or is it beginning to grow cold? And it could even happen the second week after launch because our hearts are prone to wander and we shall not trust them. Amen? We're going to take communion, but in a, as I close and wrap this up and pray, I want to read, I know we're kind of all over with the scriptures, but I thought this would be fitting uh, just as we think about the gospel and what Jesus has truly done in our lives. In Romans 1, 17, or I should say 16, let me read that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek is for all people, all kinds of people. Verse 17, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from what? From faith to faith. You're saved by faith, you're sustained by faith, and ultimately you'll be glorified by faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We live by this faith. And you might ask yourself, and I think it's, it's, it's worth sometimes giving a definition of what is faith? What is faith? I want you to write these things down because I want you to think about it throughout this week, what faith is. Because we are all called to be saved by faith, but not only that, but we are called to live by faith. Not by sight. Patting ourselves on the back, thinking we're Okay. And meanwhile, we're being swept away by the culture, being swept away, away by our own deceitfulness of sin, thinking that we can hold the tide back in our own strength. This is what faith is. It is a commitment to, it is a trust in, and a reliance upon. That's what faith is. Let me say that again. When you come to faith in Christ, it is a commitment to him. It's not just easy believism. It's not just say, I believe, I believe Jesus. Yeah, I believe him. Well, frankly, the demons believe in Jesus. But it's a commitment too. If you want to come to Christ this morning, you have to understand that it is a commitment to him. That's what faith is. It's a trust in. I trusted him, not my own works to save me. And not only that, but it's a reliance upon. It's a lifelong reliance upon him not ourselves. If you do that, not only will you become a disciple of Christ, but you might be chosen to be a leader in his army to go change the world. And I believe that God is wanting to do that. And where does this faith come from? You might ask, where does it even come from? It certainly doesn't come from you. 
and me. It doesn't come from the preacher. It doesn't come from your parents. It doesn't come from anybody else. It comes from God. It comes from him. And that brilliant illustration that he chose to use with John, in, in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, he asked him simply, what did you have to do with? Yeah, I mean, this distinguished religious leader did not want to be belittled. And Jesus wasn't trying to belittle him with all his education. He simply asked a question. Did you have anything to do with your first birth? No. By way of illustration, do you think you have anything to do with your second birth? The answer is no. The only thing dead man can do is stink. You're not grabbing a hold of Jesus in the casket. God has to do something to your heart. Simply he gives you faith by his grace. And once he gives it to you, when you hear that gospel call, you run. You run to Jesus. You run to him. That's what faith is. Faith is reaching out. Spurgeon said that faith is reaching out with your hands to Jesus. Faith is your legs. It's running to Jesus. Faith is your eyes looking to Jesus. Faith is your mouth calling out to Jesus. That's what faith is. And that's what we need this morning, isn't it? That that might change our lives by his grace. And so as we take communion this morning, one of the things we always say is that this is for believers only. And when we take communion, the wonderful, wonderful thing is, is he, he gives you a few points of, of communion. He makes it so clear. Do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? Exactly what Jesus said in Mark 10, right? That he came, he suffered, he died. He was buried and he rose again for our behalf. And I'm going to take that bread that has been broken as symbolic of his, of his body. It was given for us. And also the, the, the juice. And in that case, it was the wine. He poured that out, which was symbolic of his blood. He poured that out so that you could be washed by his, by his blood and be forgiven past, present, and future. And you need to hear that this morning. In fact, when you come in here, you're like, man, I just need forgiveness. I just need to hear it. I need to hear it from somebody. And I'm telling you right now, you come to Christ, you call out, like I just said, like Spurgeon did, you'll have forgiveness. And that blood will wash you completely clean. I don't care what you've done in your past. It does not matter. But it also, it reminds us of these gospel truths, but it also allows us as believers to pause for just a moment and say, is there anything in my life right now that is hindering this fellowship between me and him. And then you turn to 1 John 1, 9, and you just say, all right, Lord, there are, there are some things. And you, you confess to him, and he, he is faithful to wash all unrighteousness away from your slate so that you might have close fellowship again, that feeling of joy again, that feeling of like there's nothing between God and I, fellowship-wise. Amen? So why don't we go ahead and do that. Go ahead and bring the communion elements up. Are you guys ready for that? And then uh, what we'll do is we'll have you guys come down this aisle down here, take the communion elements, and then go to your seat. But again, just two things. One, please do not take this if you're an unbeliever. If, you have, if you're concerned about whether you're saved or not, please even just tap someone on the, the back, go to one of our elders, and just say, hey, I, 
I think that's me, but I want to be saved and I want to take communion for the first time with the body of believers. And you can go ahead and do that. What an awesome day. You won't, you won't ever forget that day that you got to take communion here Labor Day weekend with us. And so why don't you go ahead and uh, make that decision to follow Christ and tap somebody on the shoulder, have them pray with you. And if you are a believer, just pause. Take the, go ahead and take the elements. You'll have a time to pause when you go back to your seat, but just go ahead and take the bread, dip it in, in the juice and go back and just sit there and just say, God, just speak to me. Show me something in your word. Just show me if there's something that is offensive in my life towards you. I want to be right again with you. I want to be free from the bondage of sin. And I want to have close fellowship again. And he'll do that. It's amazing. He does it every time. You can, it's guaranteed. That's why he came. So, Father, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much that you've given us as a way of reminding. You want us to do this. You've called the church to do this. You've called the church to be a, a people who are reminded over and over and over again of what you've done for them, what you've done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take it in a worthy manner. But even in a bigger way for this message to, Lord, impact our lives, that we would truly be leaders, disciples who are humble, self-denying. There would be a people that put others above ourselves. That we would be a people who are unselfish, who encourage others, who are not so much about uh, our positions and, and, and our, our, our path to get there, but rather deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow you and serve others, become a slave to all. And Lord, I thank you that you are uh, producing leaders in this church, hopefully godly leaders in the coming years that will have these characteristics by the power of your spirit. We thank you for what you're doing here. God, we pray that we would be touched by this gospel message. We'd share it with other people. They would be touched by it. And we'd see a movement here happen in Oviedo, of disciple makers saying yes to you, denying themselves, becoming servants of all and seeing a revival in our day, which is so needed today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and...